There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Not ho- now hope that is seen is not hope. For what hope for what we see, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit himself in our weaknesses... For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you for preserving it. Thank you also for the promise that your spirit would teach us. And we look forward to that hour even now that we would, uh, we would learn that we would be attentive to you, that we would see your glory, that we'd be a little more, more transformed, that we would grow in greater assurance of our standing with you, our position in your son. And Father, thank you for our church. We thank you for our singing this morning, that, and we pray that you've been pleased with it. And now you, may, you find us all attentive. May you find us all not distracted by the cares of a past week or the worries and concerns of a not promised tomorrow. But may we be fixed on just now our Lord, our Savior, and that your word will be held with high regard and that you would do a great work among us. And if there's someone among us who has yet to know Christ, may they come into the experience of there is no condemnation, that you'd grant them repentance, you'd show them their sin and grant them saving faith. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Well, we come to what many would say is the summit uh, in, in the letter to the Romans. Um, after you come out of Romans 7, the, the, the mystery and the pain of Romans 7, we now are going into the uh, refreshment, the clarity, even the encouragement of Romans 8. It does seem like a high mountain summit compared to the valley of what we saw in Romans 7. And it's important that uh, we recognize that in Romans chapter 8, it has long through church history been acknowledged uh, that this is the place where the splendid views of the gospel are put out like perhaps in no other place. And I want to just give you some, some, some history on great men of God that have filled pulpits uh, abroad and in our country throughout history and just what the thoughts were of Romans chapter 8. I told you last week as we, as we were going through Romans 7 is it's important that you read Romans 6, Romans 7, and Romans 8 all at once because really Romans 6 and Romans 8 are the mountain views that allow you to, to get through the valleys of Romans chapter 7. And so uh, let me just give you some background of how Romans 8 has been viewed through history and why I took the time to read the entire chapter because it truly is... Um, the highlight of Romans uh, chapter, uh, the Romans, the letter to, uh, to the Romans. There was a 17th century Puritan named Thomas Jacob. He preached a series of sermons on Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Uh, the book is in print. It's uh, 15 chapters and 362 pages of double column on four verses of Romans. You may think, well, that's just overkill. Um, if each chapter is a sermon, which as I've looked at this book and read some of it, uh, I don't think each chapter is. It's probably broken out. There's, there's probably 30 sermons just in the first four verses. 
And he preached this in a private home. He preached it in a private home because he was, um, he was kicked out of public ministry because of persecution in London. And he said the reason why he spent so much time in Romans, in Romans 8, 1 through 4, is that he was convinced that Christians need the truth about the assurance that they have of the love of God in Christ. He went on and said this, quote, In digging this mine of verses 1 through 4, I found it to be so full, the reader is soon convinced that it's not strange so few verses should make a volume of this bulk. End quote. Octavius Winslow, some of you have read his books. I encourage you all to read his books. Uh, a 19th century English pastor uh, who wrote a 35-chapter, 396-page book on Romans 8. It's titled, No Condemnation. F. Gaudet, the Swiss, the Swiss commentator, said these 39 verses are great because they begin with no condemnation and end with no separation. An old German commentator named Spenner, he said, quote, if the Bible was a ring and the book of Romans its precious stone, chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of that jewel, end quote. Charles Trumbull Quote, the eighth chapter of Romans has become peculiar precious to me, beginning with no condemnation, ending with no separation, and in between, no defeat. End quote. Dr. James Boyce um, called Romans 8 the greatest chapter in the Bible. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said that there's a general agreement that this chapter... It's not only great from the standpoint of interpretation, but it stands as one of the greatest chapters in all the scripture. And then I would end this little tour through history with Derek Thomas, a contemporary today. Thomas says, quote, No chapter of scripture reaches the same sustained levels or covers the same ground as Romans 8. It is a description of the Christian life from death to life, from justification to glorification, from trial and suffering to the peace and tranquility of the new heaven and new earth. It contains exhortations to persevere as well as assurances of God's preservation of his people. And no chapter has been cited more than this one in expounding the application of redemption in the life of an individual. Romans 8 gives us a picture of salvation in all its completeness. End quote. So what I want you to understand, this is, this chapter is what every Christian longs for. And what you long for is a full assurance. Is a full assurance not only of your standing with God, but your full assurance of eternity. And Romans 8, its theme is simply that. It is assurance. And it is that precious jewel, that precious jewel that the Lord would give us. Uh, to, to mine, so to speak. And that's what I want us to do. I want us to spend some time uh, in Romans 8 to mine the riches in this treasure chest. What we're going to do today, someone looked at the outline and saw the text was Romans 8 and asked me, are you going to do Romans 8 today? The whole thing? And I said, well, not really. Um, we're going to do a flyby. We're going to do a flyby of Romans 8. And if you don't know what a flyby is, that's just, and if, you, if you've seen Top Gun, you know what a flyby is. Um, and so, uh, one of my jobs in the Navy, I was an air intercept controller, and um, we would control carrier-based fighters. They would, they would take off, and they would turn them over to the cruisers and uh, destroyers, and we would control those guys, and then they would go back to the carrier, and oftentimes, uh, the pilots would say, can we do a flyby of your ship? 
and we would let them. And a flyby, as you know, is pretty quick, uh, very quick. And so what we're going to do today is do a flyby of Romans chapter 8. And you'll see the outline that I've given you. Uh, we're going to identify seven assurance-building truths that unfold in this letter, in this chapter. And we're going to do it stemming from the thesis statement that Paul makes in verse 1. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he will go from there and he will unfold uh, at least seven truths that build assurance, that show us there is no condemnation. And one of the things that plagues Christians more than anything, Christians who are following the Lord, the Christians that want to make a difference for Christ, is that they, they load those periods of darkness where there may be doubts, there may be fears. And so assurance is what we want to see in this chapter and to build a life of assurance because as you're assured of your position in Christ and as you're assured of your salvation, you became a bold, confident witness for the gospel in the workplace, in the marketplace. The Christian who's always doubting, who's always fearful, who's always timid, always struggling with where are they, am I saved, am I not, uh, they don't have a strong witness and they're likely not sharing Christ uh, as they should because they lack confidence in their own standing with him. Well, Romans chapter 8, chapter 8 is our chapter for assurance. And so, as I mentioned, we're just going to go through the treasures of Romans chapter 8. I'm going to identify them. We'll look at a couple key verses in each section. And then, Lord willing, we'll start next week and we'll go through each, each one of the seven and expound those for our edification and our assurance. And the first one is this. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 4. We'll actually read verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Pauline's under, Paul's understanding of a Christian was someone that was in Christ or someone that is in Christ. Now he would start out Romans chapter 8 with this thesis statement that those who are in Christ, they have no condemnation ever. He would use the same method in Romans chapter 5 when he would define and describe uh, the doctrine of justification by faith. He would say in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we, are, we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he would unfold in Romans chapter 5 what that peace looks like and how justification is applied. In Romans chapter 8, he starts out by showing us the cardinal understanding of what it means to be a Christian. If you are a Christian today, God has sovereignly placed you in an inseparable union in his son. Is that when you see yourself, you should always see yourself, not only just believing in Jesus, but that you are in Christ. There's this inseparable oneness with him and with you that sustains you all the way to heaven. And in order for Paul to build assurance in these believers as well as John would in the first, uh, first epistle, is that he emphasizes that this, this union we have in Christ is the bedrock foundation. So my question to you today, do you see yourself in your salvation as one who has been grafted in, given by the Father to the Son, and that you are in this oneness with the Lord Jesus? If you don't see that, then I would argue you're struggling in your Christian life. 
Because the Christian life is rooted first and foremost in Romans 8, 1 through 4, in our position in Christ. If you try to gauge your standing and your walk with God by your Christian performance, you're going to get very discouraged and you're going to find yourself in Romans 7 all the time. Is you got to see yourself as Romans 6 and Romans 8 would tell us is that we are in Christ, forever in Christ, and as a result of that, there is no condemnation. And you say, well, what about when I sin? Do you honestly think God didn't know that you were going to sin after he gave you to his son? Of course he did. But that's not a license to sin. What it does is it causes, which we will see in Romans 8, this groaning inside that you want to be free from this body of sin. In Romans chapter 6, Paul would say about this union in Christ, we've been united with him in death like his, so we will certainly be united with him in, in his resurrection. What Paul has just identified in Romans 6, 5 it parallels with Galatians 2.20, is that the Christian life, you live the Christian life out of your position in Christ, is that you died to sin with him. You rose, when he rose from the dead, you rose with him so that you would have the power so that sin would not have dominion over you. When a Christian is enslaved in sin, it's always by choice. Because all the resources in our union in Christ has caused us to have the power necessary. And I would encourage you to do a study of how Paul recognizes a Christian is someone who is in Christ. Circle it in your Bible. Mark it in your Bible. How many times in Paul's letters he mentions in Christ, in Jesus, uh, in Jesus Christ. You're going to find your Bible marked up pretty heavily. It's over 160 times because that was his understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And if you think about that for a minute, that is staggering. And it really provides what you need as the foundation to live the Christian life that's not always mired in Romans 7. So the first thing we have by way of building assurance is that we have our position in Christ. There is no condemnation to them who are in Christ, inseparable union. That's a strong uh, deterrent to sin too. Because every time you're tempted, you need to think about, wait a minute, I'm in Christ Every time you're tempted, and whether it be with your eyes, whether it be the passions of your heart, whatever it would be, whenever you're tempted, you should immediately think about, wait a minute, I am in Christ. How could I possibly do this or feed this for the very things that he died that I wouldn't do? And so that's the position we have in Christ, is that it becomes a real deterrent towards sin because of him who lives within you. Okay, let's go to the second one. Look at uh, Romans 8, 5 through 13. We're not reading all of these sections. We probably should, uh, but we'll break these down when we do. The second uh, truth about insurance for the believer, found in chapter 8 of Romans, is the empowering presence of the Spirit. The empowering presence of the Spirit. Romans 8, 5 through 13, this section is the meat, so to speak, of chapter 8. It's the clearest explanation of the Spirit's presence and power to live the Christian life. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 and verse 13, key verses there. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life, uh, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And embedded within that verse is the gospel. Is the gospel. It is the gospel that placed you in Christ, and the gospel is the Spirit of life. And then look at verse 13. 
But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How many times have I failed in my Christian life? It's to try to put down sin in the strength of myself instead of realizing that I already died to it because of the spirit of life and to exercise faith in the resurrection of Christ and his power to conquer what he already conquered. That's what faith does. It doesn't you trying to kill something that's already killed. You... you Attach yourself and remember that you're in Christ and because of the presence of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit, you're able to overcome all those things that would cause you to stumble. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So already we see Paul um, Showing us, one, that our position in Christ frees us from condemnation. Then he goes into a practical application of verses 5 through 13. Is how we are to live in the Spirit. And there's a lot of things out there that talks about the Spirit, which I really am not sure if it is of the Spirit. And if you look at that, what Paul says in verses 5 through 13, I would encourage you to read chapter 8 uh, for the next few weeks as we work our way through it. You will see that Paul would say that we have a personal responsibility to walk in the Spirit. That we have a personal responsibility. It isn't just that I sit back and say that I'm in Christ. Now, Spirit of God, do it all for me. That's not what the Christian life is. And Paul will show us how the mind, the mind is critical. To Christian living. Because how you, I've told you this before and I'll keep on telling you, how you think determines how you live. And if you are putting, your mind is being shaped by more influences of the world, don't be surprised if you're a worldly Christian. Is that if you are constantly having the, the world shape your worldview, or you're constantly being flooded with the pleasures of the world and all the things of the world, and you're always wrapped around the distractions and the things of the world, then your mind is going to be worldly. And if your mind is worldly, your life is going to be worldly. So it's critical that we see that the spirit-filled life and the spirit-led life has to do with right thinking. And we'll see how many times in verses 5 through 13 that the mind is referred to by Paul. And when you look at the, uh, the in chapter 12, you see the very first uh, application of all this doctrine. What does Paul say? Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. So ask yourself even the question right now, well, how do you think? And it isn't just that you adopt Christian thoughts. That's not... What the Christian mind is. It means that every single thing in your life comes through the lens of, of Christ. It comes through the lens of the scripture. You say, well, how can I do that? Well, that's because your mind has to be saturated with the word of God. And if the word of God is, is filling, filling your mind, then that's what's going to move your heart and move your will. So we're going to see that assurance comes from the empowering presence of the spirit who helps us. In regards to this. And I do want to spend some time on that. Because I think for the general, general um, populace of Christians. We don't think very well. We don't think very well. I said we. I didn't say you. I said we. We don't think very well. And this is what I, this I say that. Number one. Is that we don't do very, very good at meditating on scripture. We don't do very good at all on meditating. Uh, and the, you want to you know how that's true? How often do you find yourself living anxiety-ridden 
instead of thinking what Christ says in Matthew 6 about anxiety. That's just one example. Christians are just, just like everybody else when it comes to this. So the mind has to be renewed, and we'll talk about that too. Number six. Um, now, he goes from uh, one through four. There's no condemnation because of our position in Christ. That builds assurance. Then he goes from five to 13, uh, 14, I should say. Um, he says the empowering presence of the Spirit. Now, take a look at verse, um, verse 14 through 17. Sorry, 14 through 17. That's the next one. And this is one that I want us to really, really understand because here's where assurance comes. How many times in, in your failings have you wondered, does God really love me anymore? Can God continue to love me though I fail so much? Am I really a child of God? That's the devil. Notice what Paul says in verse 15. This is the third thing. The third thing that builds assurance in the life of the Christian is that we are adopted into God's family and we need to study and look at what adoption means and what this, what this truth towards assurance means. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The same language is used in Galatians chapter 4 where Paul would say God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Now let's remember that prior to us coming to Christ, prior to the Father putting us in Christ, Ephesians chapter 2 says we were children of wrath. We were in the family of wrath. Then we would go on and look at 1 John. He says now you're a child of God. Now you're a child of God. You say, wait a minute, but I fail. Yes, we don't always live up the family traits as a Christian. But that doesn't disown us in the family. Is that we still maintain a family identity. And this is one of the strongest forms of assurance for the Christian. Is to know that the Spirit bears witness with you. And to know that you're a child of God. And when, when God adopts a child, He never disowns the child. He never gets rid of the child. The Spirit assures us in this text that this transfer into our forever family is forever. And the, just like when I mentioned um, about our position in Christ impacting us every day, when you understand and you believe that God has adopted you in His family and that you pray to a Heavenly Father, not in some mechanical form or vain repetitions, but you really cry out, Abba, Father, do you know what the strength that is when life is hard? When life is so hard and you feel like you can't go on another day, is that you know that you can cry upward to a Father, a Heavenly Father, who loves you with an everlasting love, who loves you with the same intensity that He loves His Son, the Lord Jesus. That provides the greatest assurance for, for you as a Christian. Dan Crover, he wrote the foreword in a book by Joe Beek called Heirs with Christ, the Puritans on Adoption. Listen to what he said. God is an adoptive father. Jesus, our elder brother. God is the eternal, only begotten, uh, who gave us his only begotten son. We believers are his children through adoption. This identity is central to who we are. As adopted children, we enjoy all the rights and privileges of the relationship that God the Father enjoys with His eternal Son. Let me get to you again because I, I, I misquoted part of it. Jesus, our elder brother, is God's 
the Father's eternal, only begotten, natural Son. We are His by adoption. And get a hold of this. He goes on to say that the Father bestows the same love upon the natural begotten Son, Jesus, as He does upon us, His adopted. Isn't that staggering? Staggering to think that you are loved, if you're a Christian, you are loved with the same intensity and the same eternality that God the Father loves Jesus. Why is that? Because of number one, we're in Christ. He sees us in His Son. So that's the third mark of assurance that we're going to look at. Then there's the fourth one. It's in verses 18 through 25. Now you can look at, excuse me, you can look at all of these in your life right now and ask this, are these present? Do I understand these? Even to the very, very fundamental basis of it. Do you have these? Then it would give you assurance that you truly are a child of God. But here's the fourth one. It's found in verses 18 through 25. The Spirit produced thirst for glorification. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Does that describe you? Have you been fighting out the Christian life in Romans 7? The things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I want to do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Have you found yourself in that? And you just cry out, I just can't wait to be delivered from all this. I just can't wait for that day that when I see Christ, I'll be like him. Or that day when he takes me out of this world, that I'll have this war no more. I hope that you have those yearning because that's the evidence of the Spirit working in you. And what is the Spirit doing? He's producing within you a thirst a thirst for glorification. Remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1? He says, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to part and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. You know what Paul says? Paul says, I am so anxious. I am so giddy. I want to be with Christ right now. The word hard pressed in that Philippians passage, it means distressed or pressed down. Even to the point of such a, such a good anxiety that I just want this to be, to be over with so I can be with Christ. Does that describe you today? Or are you really comfortable in the world that you live in? I hope not. There should be this yearning with inside of us because the Spirit, as the first fruits, yearns within us. Romans 8, 23, He yearns within us to give us this desire to be with Christ. You know, another, another Navy, Navy uh, illustration. You know, when you come home from deployment, um, when you go, it's, it's rough, it's sad. But when you, when you um, like I was in the Atlantic Fleet, the second fleet, and we would deploy. And so as soon as we get past Gibraltar, we operationally chop. It's called chop. Is that we chop to six fleet control. That means the six fleet flag, he owns us for the deployment time. We're no longer attached to the second fleet. And so you're over there, and you know you're a long time on deployment, long time from home. Uh, but then it's time to leave. And you find yourself in your battle group, or if you're just three or four ships, you find yourself cruising towards the Western Med, the Mediterranean. And then when you leave Gibraltar, you hear the word that we are operationally chopped back to Second Fleet. And then the excitement starts to swell within because now we're going home. And the, the crossing of the Atlantic is, 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 is quite a festive time. 
Uh, very few people sleep. They're so, they're so giddy about going home. They could not wait. We could not wait to pull in to the, to the pier and see our loved ones. It is a very weak illustration of the excitement and of the pressure, even the distress that we should have about being glorified, about being in the presence of the living God. And this thirst, though, is not just for the future. It's for the now. Psalm 63, 1 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. Psalm 42, 1 and 2, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Have you ever seen an animal when it has to have its thirst quenched? When my dog wants to drink water, and that little bowl's empty, he just stands there and looks at me like, Well, don't you understand that I'm famished? And I can't even get that thing poured down there until Jake's just lapping that thing up. He, that, that thirst will not be denied. And he used the illustration of a deer panting. Friends, that should be the Christian every day. Now, I understand it will ebb and flow. I understand, but there will be this hunger by the Spirit's presence of causing us to yearn for Christ, to yearn to be free, to yearn to be. Where that, where that thirst is absent, there is a barren soul. Where that thirst is absent, this thirst for Christ, this thirst for, for, for more of Him, this thirst to be with Him, there is a barren soul. It's been shaped by the, by the fool's gold and, the, and, and the, the broken cisterns of the world. And the Spirit in us wants to develop within us this insatiable thirst for God. And here's the paradox. You taste the goodness of Christ and you're satisfied, but you want more. I'm satisfied, but it's not enough. I want more. Jonathan Edwards said this, quote, Holy desire, exercise in longings, hungerings, and thirstings after God and holiness is often mentioned as an important part of true religion. And so as we go through this, we try to build a life of assurance. Ask yourself the very question. Is the Spirit producing within me this groaning that there's nothing in this world that satisfies my soul like Christ. There's nothing in this world that gives me pleasure like sitting at the foot of Jesus and being taught like Mary. That's what the Spirit wants to do. And where that's present, there's assurance. There's assurance. Number five, this takes on to the fifth section as we outline this chapter, verses 26 and 27. And here we have the astounding truth of the Spirit's intercession. The Spirit's intercession. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We need to do some work with that. What does that mean? What is, this, what is the Spirit himself interceding for us with groanings too deep for words? When we don't know how we ought to pray. You don't have to always fill the air with words when it comes to prayer. You don't always have to fill the air with words. Some of the best words, some of the best prayers you'll ever offer are just inward groans. And there's times that all you can do in the midst of your agonies, in the midst of your Romans 7, in the midst of, your, of the pain of loss and disappointment and all that of living in a fallen world, there are times that the greatest prayer that you'll ever pray, pray is simply this from Romans 8, Abba, Father. 
just to be at his feet, just to be there and just be soothed by, by your father, or, or even crying out, Lord, my shepherd. Those are sometimes the best, and the Spirit will help us do this. And here's another thing. Notice what it says in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Well, we see the Spirit's ministry mirrored by the Lord Jesus. Because in Romans chapter 8, 34, it says that Jesus intercedes for us. So get a hold of this. You have two members of the Trinity that pray for us. Have you thought about that? I know you know that Jesus prays for you. But do you know that the Spirit prays for you too? So they have these, the, the, the two members, two members of the Trinity are praying to the Father for us. And we also have the Spirit helping us in our weakness. And then we have the Lord Jesus in Hebrews 4.15. He sympathizes with our weakness. What a good God we have that would come to us in our weaknesses, identify for us in our weaknesses, and then pray for us when we don't know how to pray. And that will build assurance. And then six. As we outline Romans 8, here's six. The sixth truth to build personal assurance is found in 28 through 30. This has been known as a golden chain of redemption. The golden chain of redemption. You see in Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What is the glorious truth about all of these acts of God in bringing together the whole golden chain of redemption and the whole plan of redemption is every one of these active acts of God are in the past tense. He's done that for us. Why? Because of Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, And being in Christ Jesus, that means, one, I was predestined. Two, I was called. Three, I was justified. And I will be glorified uh, in a future tense. But even now, positionally, I am. We may call uh, the golden chain practical theology or a doctrine for life. It's actually unfolded nicely in the first six chapters of Romans. And Ephesians chapter 1 would also have that. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, read verse 3 through 14. It's one long, continual sentence where Paul would just uh, explode with excitement of what God has accomplished in Christ for his children. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him, uh, he predestined us to adoption in whom we have redemption and forgiveness. So certainly uh, um, implied throughout Ephesians 1 is the golden chain. And then 7, look at verses 31 through 39, and the key verses are 35 and 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do you know what he says? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That includes ourselves. You can never go so far down the prodigal trail that you won't be recovered. That isn't an invitation to run down it. The reality of it is, is we all fall. But yet nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Not even our misconduct as a Christian. This is a great conclusion of the chapter, um, of chapter 8. There's this no separation from God and His love. No condemnation to no separation. We are loved with an everlasting love. Jesus says He loved, as He loved His own who are in the world, He loves them to the end. That includes us. 
and that we are to learn how to abide in His love. So, as we just did this flyby of Romans chapter 8, we'll go back and we'll start uh, boring down on, these, uh, on, these, on, the, on the, the way that the chapter... The, the chapter outlines difficult. It's a very difficult chapter to outline, uh, though we've got seven of these truths that we're going to go back and look at, and uh, hopefully we'll gain some greater insight on how great God is and what He's provided for us by way of assurance, because every Christian longs for full assurance. In Romans chapter 8, it is certainly the place of full assurance. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this great chapter, and we look forward to mining its riches. May you help us. Uh, may you help us to, uh, as we may struggle with assurance, that we'll see that in this gold mine of truth will be all we need to have a, an assured life in you and, and to live with boldness and to live with confidence that we can influence others uh, for your gospel. Thank you, Father, and thank you for your goodness even this day. In Jesus' name, amen.